Welcome to Watershed's December podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove. I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed. And I'm Tara Jeter. I'm the cinema producer here at Watershed. Now, as it's December, Tara, this is the month when we look back at the year in film at Watershed. Um, some highlights, some lowlights. So we're going to talk through some of our highlights, I think we'll just concentrate on. Yeah, there's quite a few of them. I mean, I think this has been a strong year for cinema. I, I think I said that last year and I was surprised last year, but I've been pleasantly surprised again this year. I wasn't sure that 2018 could live up to 2017's yeah. list. but it, it, It's really interesting because I had that same thing when I was thinking about the year in cinema. I was going, oh, it's not really a good year. Sort of scratching the head, thinking, oh, I wonder if I, you know, what comes off the top of the head. Started looking. I have got a long list of about 25 films and looking back you think god it's a great year for films starting way back january all the way through so what what were some of the highlights for you yes i've got a really um i think kind of diverse list in that there doesn't seem to be much thematically tying a lot of the films together there just were a lot of great films uh i would cite things like the wound cold war zama Mandy, Shoplifters, Skate Kitchen, and Sorry to Bother You among some of my top films of the year. Not my top five, because we'll get to those yeah, at the end, yeah, yeah. but uh, some of the really strongest films that I think I saw this year. Blown away by most of those titles, really think that there's some really incredible filmmaking. Um, obviously, any year with a Corriere film is a great year. This year we had two. Uh, we had Shoplifters and actually The Third Murder much earlier in the year, and both of those films are great. Obviously, The Third Murder kind of came and went without much fanfare, and then he won the Palm d'Or for Shoplifters, so that's the one everybody's really talking about. And, and which has done well at the box office shoplifters so it's great to see such a great filmmaker such a great film getting an audience it's fantastic to see i think all the Corriere fans are like finally everybody's you know giving this man the recognition that he deserves mm. and, and some of those films you've mentioned are still to come i mean it's not as though we're looking back actually in december sorry to bother you uh, Boots Riley film um, is is quite a treat. It's absolutely fantastic. This is just so much fun, riotous good fun. I think this film, um, and with such a great social conscience as well. You know, it's all about exploitation and worker politics, labour politics. Uh, but you know, a fantastically enjoyable film. It's it's hilarious. It's a satire. Um, you know, it will have you laughing as much as you will be kind of really thinking about the politics of the film and the world around you. And it's a it's an interesting companion piece to Spike Lee's Black Klansman earlier this year, which definitely which was great to see Spike Lee back on form. I I think. I mean, he, he was there was a, a you see a social conscience about it. He was um, saying something about contemporary America, but you know with this. Um, un, quite extraordinary story of a black cop that infiltrated um, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, but, you know, set historical, but saying something about now, whereas, sorry to bother you, is very much about now and very much about sort of race relations yeah. uh, at the moment in America. And, and with fantastic leads. I mean, I think it's worth saying that Lakeith Stanfield and Tessa Thompson are in this film, who I'm sure, you know, people will be very familiar with. Um, Lakeith is from the TV show Atlanta, but also he featured in Get Out um, and Tessa Thompson, Dear White People, you know, uh, she's featured in Janelle Monae's videos, etc. Uh, fantastic actors that really are spearheading this film. And so I think their performances as well are really worth pointing to. Mm. And that's coming up, as I say, this month. There's also an another film for me, which uh, I'd want to talk about, which is Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built. 
I don't know if I necessarily want to talk about it, but it, it kind of demands to be talked about. And, th and that's coming up in December. I think this is the film that I'm most looking forward to, but not while well, not looking forward to seeing it. So um, I think, you know, this, this fits into... Earlier in the year, you talked about Climax, and I said, oh, I don't know it's if Gaspar I want Noyes to go see film. it. Yeah. And I said, maybe I will, and I'll let you know what I thought about it. And then in the end, I made the decision not to go see it because I decided that I don't need to see any more Gaspar Noé films. I know how I feel about them, and I don't enjoy them. But actually, with uh, Lars von Trier, even though I, everything I know about this film going in says I'm not going to enjoy it, I still have a curiosity. So mm. I'll be interested to see whether or not I decide at the final hour to go see it or not. Well, I, I, so I, I saw The House That Jack Built at Cannes this year and, along, and I wrote about it alongside two other films that would be on my list um, for this year, which you mentioned, Gaspar Noé's Climax, um, but also Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book, which again, was screening a couple of screenings um, this month. And then Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built and kind of three enfants terribles uh, of cinema all together in one festival. And for me, Gaspar Noé, I've said before, Gaspar Noé's Climax was actually and is in my top five of his films of the year. Um, I just think it was, it, he, he was doing something cinematically that I just thought was so powerful, viscerally powerful, as well as being playful. But he, he didn't, he, he'd sort of lost the naughty teenager at the back of the class type vibe. Uh, in some of his previous provocations where you just know you're being provoked. And then uh, Goddard's The Image Book just was blown away by the amazing creative punk energy that Jean-Luc Goddard in, in his 80s, his creativity is undimmed and his explorations of the, the what the moving image can do, what the moving image is, and also sound and the use of sound. It, it's it's as though it's somebody that's in their you know late teens, early twenties, but is 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 actually trying to do something, trying to say something, and is saying something, and just brilliant, brilliant energy. And then there was the house that Jack built, mm. and then enfant terrible, um, but still the naughty boy at the back of the class. And the phrase that came to mind for for me, for me with the house that Jack built is um, from the life of Brian, and it's like he's not the messiah, he's just a naughty boy. Um, there is brilliant filmmaking, no two ways about it. House of Jack Bill has got brilliant filmmaking, you know, it is trying to get us inside the mind of a serial killer, but you just know that he's he's thinking, how can I wind the audience up? Of course he, I mean, of course he is, but I, I mean, I have to say this, I think all three of those filmmakers, as people are quite despicable in the practices of how they often treat a lot of the people they work with. I, I kind of am not really interested in the figures of the three of them. Uh, I think they're deliberately mean-spirited in some of the ways in which they approach things. And yet, I think two out of the three of them are still expert filmmakers. So I'm still curious yeah. to see the image book and the house that Jack built, even though I'm quite sure it won't be to my liking. So the other thing is that um, when you talk about Lars von Trier and the, the house that Jack built and getting into the mind of a serial killer, that actually reminds me that one of my biggest surprises this year was My Friend Dharma. Yeah. Um, this absolutely, was the film that probably yeah, I yeah. would have said no way would it end up on my end of year list yeah. as, as something that I thought was a really fantastic film. And yet, here it is on my end of year list as one that I keep going back yeah. to thinking about just time and time again. And I just think it's a really extraordinary piece of filmmaking in, in how it builds the suspense. 
No, I, com I completely agree with that. Likewise, prospect of the film, My Friend Dahmer, was why do I want to see a film about this Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer? But I went in with that sort of reticence with my, and, but no, it's, it's on my list as well. Um, it's on my long list as one of the kind of highlights of the, of the year because th there was an exploration of, actually of empathy, um, I think, because this was the a young man at school who was clearly distressed, fraught, and nobody picked up on it at all. And it was a kind of failure of community, a failure of, you know, um, family, family, friends, the, everything, school, and, uh, every system yeah. that is supposed to. And fascinatingly, I think that the reason that's also so fascinating is because every system that failed him is just a mirror image of what happened when he started committing the crimes. Because law enforcement repeatedly failed to arrest him when they were really close. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's even instances of that. I mean, the most appalling story of the time where they literally had this young man who was naked and bleeding running mm. through the street, one of his victims that had got away, and they returned the victim to his front door, and he had decomposing bodies in the house. Mm. It's and like the, they were at his front door and they didn't in, in get the, him. And the, the film doesn't go anywhere near that. It's because it's, it's before he actually um, starts. Yes, but um, what it but does... It, but it does set up the... It prefigures it. Yeah. And so if you know anything about the cases, then you it's so it's so impacting because I think it's really mm. loaded with all of that information because all of the things that it signals are just mimicked in what happened later in life after he started mm. committing the mm. crimes. There's also something about the quality of the filmmaking, the attention to detail, period detail that it's got, which is excellently, excellently done. Um, just quickly, other titles, 120 um, beats per minute. Fantastic film about the AIDS epidemic in, um, in Paris in the 80s and about the activism. But what, it, what, what the film was, was a lot of people debating the issues as well as the, you know, the activism, but they were debating. So it was a film about debate um, on this issue and that um, screening with um, ACT UP and you know, the, the, the issue is still here and that film yeah. sort of really opened up that issue. Let the Sun Shine In, Claire Denis. The most missold film of the year. I completely agree. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a real, sh I think this is such a shame. This film didn't get the chance that it should have um, because the promotional materials for the film suggested with Juliette Binoche with her arms out looking upwards that this might be some kind of light, frothy or even quirky it, it, romantic exactly, yeah, comedy. Yeah, 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 and yeah. I think that's a real crying shame because this film is a Claire Denis film. And so yeah. for anybody who knows any of Claire Denis films previously, 35 Shots of Rum, White Material, Beau Travail, you know, she's a really careful and considered filmmaker who makes really slowly paced films yeah. um, where things boil and simmer just under the, the surface. Yeah. And so if you were to go into this film expecting it to be a light-hearted or enjoyable oh, A light-hearted Juliette Binoche you film. You would not. Yeah. And, of, and of course, uh, unfortunately, that's exactly what we saw. I think, you know, a lot of people were very disappointed in this film precisely because it was just not what they expected. But I agree that it's a great film. I think that, you know... It's, it's, such, a, it's such a brilliant study of you know, middle-aged women's, you know, desires, loves, relationships. And that extraordinary end shot with, with Juliette Binoche sat opposite Gerard Depardieu. I know. And it's great because even, even this is one, I mean, the film had me in absolute, like, almost tears of laughter because it is so funny as well. For Claire Denis, this is a real comedy. But again, it's a slow simmering comedy. The credits start rolling over that exchange the, between the two of them. It's like the film is bored of their exchange. <laughs> I mean, I just thought that was brilliant. 
I'd like to give a shout out to a couple of films that uh, didn't have very big releases this year that were either one-offs or very short seasons, um, but that really picking up on what you just said a moment ago, Mark, talking about really started great conversations and actually mm. kind of got really good dialogue going. And, and two really great examples of that for me, um, well, actually three that we had in the same month were um, Adina Pintilli's Touch Me Not, mm. uh, Rachel McLean's Make Me Up, and Maymile Thomas's Voyageurs, which all very unusual artistic films that I think really push the boundaries of what cinema is and, and question uh, a really, you know, either satirical or kind of looking at the boundaries between reality and fiction, um, particularly with Voyages and Touch Me Not, but that really created great dialogue and because of that have, have really stuck with me and been mm. films that I just keep returning to mm. and keep thinking about. Um, I think the Q&A for Touch Me Not is one of the greatest that I've, I've ever had the joy of watching because we just had such an incredibly intense discussion I would mm. say um, and because Adina is so incredibly articulate and eloquent about her own work she was really able to pinpoint the, I think the importance and significance of the film that she's made yeah. with the wider context of what's happening in the European Union um, yeah. how that affects us and also with us excluded if people did miss it we actually wrote up a lot of the things that yeah, Adina so talked about and you can actually read that on our website so um, if you're interested and you want to kind of catch up with the conversation around that film it is possible but yeah that that was a really I think fantastic um, starting point for what also then kind of came up again um, when we did the retrospective of Margareta von Trotter's films and we did uh, The Lost Honor of Katharina Blum and again this kind of conversation uh, the personal is political, so it was very similar mm. to the themes that Adina Pintilli's film was exploring, actually opened up a much wider conversation where we then started getting into, um, very much like with Agnes Varda and, and Margareta von Trotter, you know, these figures who were overlooked or mm. kind of haven't had the celebration of their lives, mm. potentially that they should have, largely because they were female filmmakers, even though she was key to the new German cinema movement, mm. is that then the whole conversation around auteur theory came up from the audience. Um, and it was really interesting to see that, we, we you know, here we are in 2018 revisiting really what's come all the way full circle back to the start of cinema and to what we celebrated at Cinema Rediscovered which is this concept of film criticism Andre Bazin you know it being mm. the centenary it, it just felt like there was um a conversation that kept happening throughout the year it kind of kept coming up again and again and, and I think actually that's one of the things that I've enjoyed most about 2018 is just seeing those discussion points being picked up at different points throughout the year um, and, and applied to all different eras and types of filmmaking. And I think it's also that the, the kind of film history is being rewritten as well for the present um, as you say because you know these voices these filmmakers have not had the the critical writing, the profile, the presence that, you know, how many books are there on Goddard? You know, how many books are there on Margaret well, von Trotter or, or Agnes Varda? Goddard would say there's only one. That, that would be the one he wrote called The True History of Cinema. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably right as well. That's the that's that's the, the ain't that the truth, but but yeah, I mean, uh, and so being able to represent those films, which as you mentioned, cinema rediscovered. I mean, that was great. With uh, you know, this is what happened with Leslie Harris. I think that's a really, really um, fantastic. That's my rep highlight of the it, year. It, it, it was great. He was a filmmaker, you know, um, whose first feature, just another girl in the IRT, was made twenty five years ago. She was in there with, you know, Spike Lee, Coen Brothers, Quentin Tarantino. Who knows Leslie Harris's name? Who knows, you know, how, how well are all those, those, those male directors known? 
Um, she's, she's not been able to make another feature film, um, even though Just Another Girl in the IRT was you know, critically successful at one Sundance in, uh, 25 years ago. Um, and uh, Leslie Harris brought her the only print of that film. Yeah. It's not been digitised. There's no digital copies of it to go around. There's no, you can't get it on, uh, online. You can't get a DVD. So this person's been erased from the, the, the film canon, film history, film books. But that film was, was, was really important at the time for images of black women on screen, exploring black women um, experience in New York in the same way that Spike Lee was doing it through, you know, do the right thing, um, you know, that early stuff. But, and, and she's not, and that to me is, you think, well, that's, there's something wrong here that, first, first of all, something wrong that she's not gone on to make other films. She's ended up, she's done some television and she's been teaching. But, you know, Scorsese would recognise, did recognise her as being one of the most important, you know, New York filmmakers of her generation. But she's, you know, where, where's the rest of the films? Um, yeah. And so that, that career has been, you know, curtailed. But then also uh, the fact that, that it's just not available is erased it from, and she's going round with this 35 mil print. Um, so it was an absolute joy to be able to show that print to a contemporary audience who, I mean, you remember, the response to it was fantastic. The response to her was fantastic. And so I, I certainly hope that through that um, rediscovery at Cinema Rediscovered, um, that it'd be great um, if we could get a digital copy and make it more readily, more available. Um, just another girl on the IRT so that people can see it. Um, but also, it, it would be great if um, we see another feature film coming from Leslie Harris. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's worth saying that there's a number of rep titles this year that um, uh, have really actually been up in, would, I know they're not new releases, but new digital releases or, mm. or, you know, new rep screenings that would really be up in my top 10 films of the year. And Leslie Harris's film is definitely one of them. Le Point Court from the Agnes Varda season is one of them. I hadn't seen that. That's her first film and it's extraordinary. Um, I mean, you know, she sort of said that she started out wanting to make shapes in cinema. Well, I've never seen a film with so many shapes in it. It's uh, beautiful. Um, she was doing Bergman before he was. And I've got to say, I think she did it better. Um, you know, Morris, the um, Merchant Ivory film also was just incredible to see really beautiful um, restoration and also the stuff that the ICO have worked on this year so in addition to the Margareta von Trotter films the revolt she said season for me the opportunity to see Laura Mulvey's Riddles of the Sphinx on a big screen was a, a true highlight and I know that everybody who was here to see it and also again to enjoy the very rich discussion that we had just was blown away because th this film is Light years real ahead of its pioneering, time. Real pioneering sort of structuralist filmmaking. I mean, it's, it's, it's just absolutely like 100 years ahead of its time. I mean, mm. I think if you revisit this film in f another 50 years or whatever, mm. that you would still think that it is completely fresh, completely new, um, and absolutely a unique way of storytelling. But I, I um, want to talk about new British talent. Because I think um, you know what we've what we've seen this year has been some really um, distinctive, strong first features from British independent filmmakers, from British filmmakers, and this is something that I think over the past couple um, three years or so there have been there's been something happening in British cinema. Um, I mean, the levelling from last year was one of those um, from, oh. from twenty seventeen. Was, was one of those was, was, was one of those films, 
And this year, I think, you know, films like Beast, Michael Piercy's Beast, um, Deborah Haywood's Pincushion, Dan Cocotile's Apostasy, uh, those, those three films, uh, I think, really have given us, um, you know, three very distinctive um, British filmmakers. And, you know, it was, again, it was great to have them on, show them here at Watershed, but also great to have the filmmakers come and, you know, talk mm. to the audience about their, um, their films. And I think they are really um, showing some great potential in the future, I think, of for British filmmaking. I would say with um, Apostasy in particular, uh, we had a which is about uh, which is about Jehovah's Witness. It is clear it's clearly made by when I saw it, it's clearly made by somebody who who has experience of Jehovah's Witnesses, um, because it's the 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 sort of detail of it is so authentic um, that you think oh, they must know something about this. And of course, then you find out that Dan, the, the filmmaker, was a Jehovah's Witness. He grew up with parents Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, I think one was more serious about it than the other. But you know, he he was brought up in, in that environment and has since kind of moved away from it. But you can't just simply move away from that like other religions. Jehovah's Witnesses, there's something going on in Jehovah's Witnesses which is which which, which the film kind of reveals. And in the Q and A, and I was in a packed auditorium uh, in Cinema One, you know, two hundred people, and. I kind of wanted to talk about the filmmaking, and I said this to Dan, you know, and he said, well, I want to talk about the filmmaking, everybody wants to talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses, but I, you know, I want to talk about the filmmaking, of which the craft, that he's, he's, he's a really great filmmaker, actually, you know, there's some really wonderful cinematography, editing, the storytelling, lots of that stuff is all fantastic. So I thought, I want to focus on that. And, and so we sat we, on stage, and, and then Dan sort of said, so how many people are, you know, sort of, I don't know if it's lapsed or there's, there's a word for it, non-Jehovah's Witnesses. And half the auditorium put their hands up. People had travelled from from Wales, from up north. Yeah. I mean, they tra because they, they this was... For, and afterwards, he stayed for another hour and a half, two hours in, in Watershed Cafe Bar talking to people about it. And what you were seeing was people who had been dealing with being Jehovah's Witnesses, weren't Jehovah's Witnesses, and they just, seeing themselves represented yeah. was so important. And somebody actually said, you know, my husband has, can finally understand what I've gone through. Um, you know, husband was, you know, they, they were trapped, they'd yeah. come to see this. So powerful. And, and because when somebody, you know, when somebody sort of tries to describe the kind of controlling elements of religion or the controlling elements of this, um, you know, somebody who's not been involved in it, it's like, what do you mean? You know, but what, they, they make you do that, you do this, you know, etc. And, and so it's very difficult to, and it was kind of like for, for, as I say, people who hadn't experienced it, oh, is that what you've... Is that what it's like? Is that what you've gone through? So again, I mean, it links with what you're saying about the conversations, um, you know, go back to Touch Me Not and, yeah. you know, stuff. Was That, again, was a really powerful m moment where the film just so connected with the audience. And having the filmmaker there, as I say, uh, was just great sharing what the film actually meant, you know, as well as apostasy alongside, as I say, Beast and Pincushion, saying that there's some really distinctive filmmaking voices that are coming through um, in the kind of British filmmaking scene. So let's move to our top five. I think we've only got one in common. For my yeah, top five, yeah, yeah, okay. um, four out of five of them are thematically linked, which I'm very surprised by, but four out of five of my top five films of the year are Westerns, which for somebody who 
doesn't really like westerns is that, quite surprising yeah, yeah, yeah. except for the reason it's not surprising is that they're all revisionist westerns yeah. they don't they don't yeah, adhere yeah. to yeah. the typical tropes of the genre yeah. um, and so that's Warwick Thornton's Sweet Country which came out at the start of the year in March mm -hmm. um, remains one of the greatest films of the year for me mm. I just think that's extraordinary filmmaking um, Valesta Greisbach's Western which I first saw at the Rotterdam Film Festival mm. and which we did show here um, really amazing way of taking genre cinema and applying it yeah. to contemporary um, kind of complex issues around social and political and economic barriers to do with movement in, in Europe. Well, it's a great film about Europe. I mean, it's absolutely a great film about Europe. Absolutely, yeah. but it's about manifest destiny. Yeah. It's still yeah. about... And about it's, masculinity. It's absolutely <laughs> about masculinity. Yeah. Um, Malina, the murderer in four acts, which is yeah. I mean, just an incredible film. And yeah. really what's, um, I think, quite amazing to remember about this is that this is the fourth Indonesian film ever to mm. get distribution in the UK. Mm. Two out of four of those Indonesian mm. films were The Raid and Raid 2. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so th this is really we don't see much Indonesian yeah. cinema, um, and the opportunity to see this again on the big screen with its gorgeous sweeping mm. vistas mm. was absolutely incredible. Um, I mean, if if you if if you love Sergio Leone and his westerns, as a lot of people do, uh, you have to you have to have, you have to see Marlena. Yeah, so instead of being a spaghetti western, this one's been constantly described as a um, samurai western. I mean, I think that that's not quite it. It's but just it's, got yeah. that, it's got that, it's reaching for that operatic, you know, that sense of cinema as scale and opera and, you know, so it's, that's what I, I thought when I saw it was, God, this is, this is somebody that's, that's doing Sergio Leone. It is, but it also flips everything on its head. So it takes things like Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then it certainly, stabs it with a feminist it's, knife. It's, I mean, it certainly does. It was yeah, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a female so, director. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. That's what I mean. It's a yeah. kind of for anyone who finds Peckinpah's films a little bit misogynistic. Oh, hi there. Um, you know, this is the kind of answer to that. Yeah, yeah. I, and forgot, then, I forgot about the head. Yes. <laughs> and then my favourite Western of the of the year and actually my favourite film of the year um, is The Rider by Chloe Zhao, uh, mm. which again, and probably my my biggest highlight of the year was that we had the great pleasure and I had the, to, the, the charming, <laughs> the absolute <laughs> charming pleasure um, of hosting a Q&A with Brady Jandrew, who's the star of the film um, and a real life cowboy yeah and yeah. you know the, I mean this film if you want to talk about blurring the lines between fiction and reality um, and also if you just want to talk about how to use light in cinema I mean this mm. film has got it all I really think that this is one of the most extraordinary films that I've ever seen not just this year and it completely blew me away I mean I, I just couldn't believe how how beautiful, moving, honest, um, and sincere this story is. Uh, it's not quite a true story, but it does take true life elements of his story into account, and it kind of moves them into a fiction um, in a really, I think, emotive way. Uh, so those are my four westerns, and then I have one outlier in my top five, uh, which is Frederick Wiseman's Ex Libris, The New okay. York Public Library. I've never really seen a documentary probably do what any other documentarian do what Wiseman does is that he packs humanity um, and commentary into every single carefully laid observational mm. shot that he mm. creates. And, and they, they are films that you lose yourself in. For hours. Yeah. And, it and feels, you don't notice. It feels you like 20 notice. minutes. Yeah. The film goes for, you know, hours and you sort of yeah. just sit there absolutely 
in, engaged and enthralled in the conversations yeah. taking place. Um, and if ever there was a film to really demonstrate not what just what a library does, but what any institution mm. that is important in a culture or a society, and mm. obviously that's an important theme for us working in a cinema, if you ever wanted to know what those institutions mm. do or why they're important, this mm. film tells you all of those reasons and it's absolutely again it's about the conversations it's about how people come together how it helps to enable mm -hmm. and start conversations Tyler, mm -hmm. i was surprised um that um lucretia martel zana wasn't in your top five i kind of thought that would have been absolutely there it's just on the outside yeah. it's only just on the outside and i do have to say what i loved about zama is that this film gets better like a, yeah. like a good wine yeah. with multiple viewings. Yeah. Actually, the, if you kind of watch it, let it percolate, watch it again, yeah. it's twice as good as it was yeah. the first time. Then do that a third time and it's even more powerful. Well, for me, that was in my top five. So my, my top five, I think um, what connects them all for me is I, they are, for me, they are essentially cinematic. Now, I think we can probably do separate podcasts on what that means. Um, and um, how long I, have you got? I, I need to. I need to probably <laughs> write the book about it. But there, 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 there is something essentially cinematic about these films, which, as you say, with with Zama, you you do. I mean, it rewards multiple viewings. And I I saw it when it screened at a festival. We then put it on here, and I watched it again. I think I've watched it three times now. Actually, mm. as you say, so and more is revealed. Um, of the film, and so when you when you watch it once, and I think all of the films that I've picked, I think if you, maybe with the exception of one, which I'll come on to, but but when you when you when you watch them, is um, you, you go out thinking, what just happened there? What have I just seen? And then you go back to it, and you know, and as you say, more is more is revealed. Um, but they, and what I mean as well is that it has to be on the big screen. I don't think you can watch, really watch. I take David Lynch's view of this. If you know, if 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 you've watched my films on on a laptop, if you've watched my films on a on a mobile phone, or on a television screen, you have not watched my films. You have to watch them in the cinema, and I profoundly agree with that. And for me, these films, of which Zama's one, Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Books, another, Lynn Ramsey, uh, you'll never really hear. Um, I, I, again, I mean, a bit like Paul Schrader, but different, but great seeing the phenomenal talent that is Lynn Ramsey, just cr creating sublime images and scenes and the way scenes connect and, and exploring, y you know, the kind of interior, um, interiority of Joaquin Phoenix's character in this film. And there is an amazing scene in it where um, he, he goes to, um, there are echoes of Taxi Driver, of course, in this, this, this storyline. He goes to get a, a young girl, save a young girl um, who's been kidnapped and put into prostitution. And he goes to, to um, free her. Any other director would have followed the character through into you know, the violence that ensues. And she cut to CCTV cameras. And just the braveness of taking that distance um, and actually, what, how, what, how it plays out as a film, I just thought was really showed a, a brilliant filmmaking sensibility. I'd agree with you. The only thing I would say about that film is that, I mean, I think it is an incredible film, and and the score is one of the things that I rem 
you know, for me, was the most powerful thing about that film. Is I mean, I physically yes, could that, feel that it vibrating. The Johnny, Green, the Johnny Greenwood um, score. I yeah. could feel it vibrating inside yeah. my yeah. body. It was that yeah. intense. Um, but I found this to be the most distressing viewing experience I think I've ever had. Mm. Um, and that's precisely to do with really how talented the filmmaking is, but the subject matter that it's dealing yeah. with. Um, and so as much as I agree with you that it's a great film, I never want to watch it again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know where you're coming from on, 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 on that front, but I think the braveness of her uh, making that is, is, is just excellent to see. And then um, I've mentioned it before, Gaspar Noe's climax. Uh, just Still a hard pass. Just, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and I mean, it is one that maybe I wouldn't go back. That's, that's the one that maybe I would sort of think, oh, do I need to go back to it? But We'll see what I, you think I, in five years. I went, exactly. Where, that's always the test, isn't it? <laughs> But I, you know, my experience of it, I, I, which I'd written about, was um, it was on in Cannes, as I said earlier. I felt professionally bound to see it. It's the new Gaspar Noe film. It's probably going to get released in the UK. I've got to go and see it. Um, I know what he's going to do. He's going to wind me up. It's going to be really annoying. Um, it's going to be a provocation. I'm getting a bit bored of all of these things, as with, you know, um, our friend Lars von Trier. It's just like, oh, right. But I, I, you know, I, sense of professional duty, um, knew I had to go and see it, 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, and I came out just thinking, so exhilarated by it. <laughs> um, it was, you know, you want to say it was a tour de force. You know, the, all those cliches kind of come up. And I just felt so exhilarated by it. I just thought, you're genius. You, you have just, you, you, I've had these expectations. You've just blown it, and you've just made something that is so kind of, you know, for me. I want to say to, say to everybody, you must go and see this. You must go and see it, um, which for me is always a great sign of a film. Uh, likewise, with the Lars von Trier, as we mentioned, I, I, I you know, I, there was a point at which I thought I'm out here, as other people did. I'm, I'm absolutely out here, but I thought, and I've got to professionally, I've got to see it all the way through because I've got to know what we're dealing with because we're going to probably show it, and we are showing it in December. Um, but there was a moment when it was just like, oh, please, come on, I'm out here. Um, but with, with, with Gaspar Noe, there wasn't. I was there with that film. It could have gone on for another two hours, and I would have absolutely enjoyed it. So that was in my top five. Um, and then, finally, Utoya, um, the Eric Pope film about the young people's experience um, of that terrible uh, massacre on the island. And... Um, I saw that at Berlin Film Festival in February, and it, that film has stuck with me. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the single take for 70 minutes. So I think formally, you know, as a piece of filmmaking, it uses the language of film to, there just couldn't have been an edit in that film for it to uh, communicate what it, was, what it was trying to communicate about the, the experience from um, the young people. I think that's I say, right, although I also think that the film would benefit from some editing. Well, I, I, I completely disagree because it's in the single take, the form of the single take, and the fact that it, that it's, it's, it links with the length of time that, that it happened. That in what, we're, what I think we're seeing there is, and I think probably seeing it in Berlin was quite um, significant because Berlin and Germany... Um, in general, but Berlin specifically memorialises its past. Its past is absolutely in your face. Mm. And it does not shy away from um, the atrocities that happened in Germany. And for me, the, the, the film Utoya, the Eric Pop Utoya, and I'm saying that because obviously there's Paul Greengrass's version, yep. and I've seen both, and I think I got really, really angry at the Greengrass film, actually. I didn't make it all the way through, I'll be honest. I watched half of it and got bored and turned it off. 
Yeah, but I, I got very angry um, with it, um, and, and it, f it, it confirmed the reasons why I think the uh, Eric Pops Utoya is 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 a really really profound and important piece of work, and I think it is. It, it's kind of like not a film that you know. And I, I mean, nobody came to see it, frankly, in the cinema. We 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 opened it on a Friday. I mean, this is not a Friday night film. This is not a weekend film. No. This is not. I mean, this is. But this is film as 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 testament as testimony, and I think it's up there. Um, it, 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 you, I want to talk about Claude Landsman's show, mm -hmm. almost in, in the same breath. You know, that it's a film that's not about you know these kinds of entertainment or you know the, the kind of Friday night opening. Um, and so when it opened, nobody went to see it. Um, but we had that talk, and again, going back to some of the things that we've been saying, it's when you get um, the conversation happening. And we, we had an amazing um, talk with the screening, followed by a talk with the University of West of England's um, Politics and Philosophy Department. Um, and the, the, the privilege of having um, somebody who was on the island um, had come over. And so, we, again, sold out screening. Um, and the conversations about it, the, the, the film started. Was very intense. Was, was very intense. Um, and so it's that thing that film can be about so many um, different things. And Eric Pope, I think, has um, demonstrated that, you, you know, it's a film that, that wants to bear witness. And you have, I think we have to think about Utoya as being a kind of public memorial. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I think it's really important to, to Mark with this film. So I, I'm not as keen on Utoya as, as you were, Mark. I didn't particularly like the film. But actually, what I, what I do definitely agree with is that because it was made in consultation with survivors, mm. now that's not every survivor, obviously. This no, is some no, survivors, no. so it's some people's story. But I think because of that, um, it really is, there is weight to the reason why this film is significant and why it should mm. be seen. I, de I definitely agree with that. And I think also that what you've just touched on is actually something that's incredibly important to say about the entire breadth of, of 2018 in film is that, you know, cinema isn't just entertainment. I mean, I, I would say it's probably, maybe that's down the, the line, one of the last things that it is. Um, what, what cinema is, is really, is a, is a, it's a communal space for people to witness or to experience something, um, which is why I think we've constantly had this theme through all of the things that have been our highlights this mm. year, have not just been films that we've enjoyed watching, they've been films that have started conversations, they've been films that have really made us think, they've been provocative, we've come back to them time and time again. I mean, I think some of the films in, in this podcast people will, might remember we've talked about earlier in the year and maybe even once or twice. And that, that's not a coincidence, it's because there's so much in some of these titles that just you can't get away from it. It kind of goes around your brain and it constantly leads you to thinking through new ideas um, and it makes you, you're, you're so desperate to talk about mm. it. Um, and I think that's really the strength of the 2018 programme for me. It's not, oh, I had lots of films where I had a, a laugh or a great time it, in the it, cinema. It's, it's yeah. this was a strong year for, for cinema because I have not want, I've not stopped wanting to talk about it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the, the, they are films that demand that you go back to them, you know, you want to go back to them. I mean, it'd be great if you go back to them in, in the cinema and, and you know, and what it says is kind of, you know, repertory cinemas um, get a good future. Because <laughs> yes, I, I think, you know, you will be screening Zama. We were, I mean, you want to screen Zama again. You want to show uh, Ex Libris, for, you know, for example, because you, you, you want to see them in the cinema space because that is that communal thing that's really, that's really important. And these films have surfaced as being really, um, I think, both important really strong cinematic and then really important sort of in that shared experience and in that audience discussion uh, side of it. 
So, um, well, that's our uh, highlights of, of the year. And as you say, um, from thinking as usual, oh, there's not a lot on this year, was there? Oh, fantastic <laughs> range of films. But, but some of them are coming up, as we've mentioned, um, this month. So, um, you know, the Lars von Trier house that Jack built uh, opens in December. Sorry to bother you, opens in December. Um, and also there's a couple of... Um, there's a couple of screenings of Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book. It's not it's not getting a run. There's only one-off screening. So do make an opportunity to um, try and catch that. Um, and also check out this month, um, which we haven't had a chance to talk about, but there is a mini retrospective of Terence Davies' films. Um, and I think, you know, as I was saying, great rep highlights for the year. There are a few still to come. That's all for this month. <laughs>